All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I am here with Dr. Dustin Smith and Pastor Will Barlow. Um, Dustin Smith, they have both been on my podcast before, so I will link to both of those episodes. Um, I've talked to Dustin Smith about Revelation, and I talked with Will about our uh, twin separated at birth life stories and his work founding, uh, starting a church in Louisville, Kentucky. So uh, you can look at both of those videos. Dustin Smith is also the host of a Biblical Unitarian podcast, or is it the Biblical Unitarian podcast? Because I, I sometimes feel like, you know, now that there are multiple Biblical Unitarian podcasts, that um, the Biblical Unitarian podcast is uh, a slight misnomer. Yes, uh the title is the biblical unitarian podcast and that was because when i started it five years ago if you went into the podcasting search engines and you typed in biblical unitarian nothing would come up so at right. the time it was v uh but now um multiple competitors have uh, sprouted up and uh now i'm just one among many uh yeah well can the mean more than one at the same time uh do you feel like uh, there's a plurality within the the uh, if I were to say, hey, can you bring me the chair? I'm not excluding the possibility of there being other chairs. It just means that there's one particular chair that I have in mind. So, sure. Um, sure. I'm, I'm happy there are other ones out there. So mm -hmm. I'm and, by no means the expert on it. And as I already mentioned, Will is the uh, lead pastor of a new church plant, Compass Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, that I'm very excited about. Uh, hopefully I'll get to visit you sometime soon. But the main thing that we are talking about today is that Will and Dustin were in a debate on the Gospel Truth YouTube channel um, on the topic, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? And your debate partners were Samuel Nissan, 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 sorry, and Kyle Essery. Um, and so I thought that we would take the opportunity to have something of a debate review to talk about their impressions from the debate, um, some things that they have had you know, time to reflect on, and uh, to also just generally point people in the direction of that debate. I thought it was a wonderful debate for a couple of reasons. I think the, the biggest feedback that lots of people seem to give is that it was a very polite and cordial and constructive debate. Uh, which is not often the case in YouTube debates between Trinitarians and Unitarians, and that this was a, an encouraging change of tone and demeanor, which I think helped people get more out of it and helped it be more constructive and, and prevented it from distracting away from the substance of the question. I feel like that that's really the best thing about a cordial debate is that it helps keep the, the focus on the substance of the topic itself unless it's too cordial and then it's just like people hanging out, but it wasn't, it wasn't so friendly that, that you guys didn't actually get into the meat of things. So I will link of course, to that debate in the notes for this episode. And also we will probably play some clips from that episode, but I guess one question that I wanted to ask either of you first is how do you think about debates and the purpose of debates and and why why engage in online debates at all so whoever wants to take that question first i, I can go for that dustin uh you know i was a debater in, in high school i've experienced over 100 debates um and you know classically speaking debate is supposed to be the pursuit of the truth that is 
you know, if you asked if we could exhume, you know, Socrates or, or Plato or Aristotle, and we asked them, what's the purpose of debate? They would say, you know, the purpose of the debate is to seek out the truth and to, to compare ideas and, and to see which one wins or if there's a third option that's better or, or whatever the case might be. In modern times, people are so entrenched and have been so entrenched in their viewpoints um, that really, especially in a debate like this, where you know biblical Unitarians like Dustin and myself, we come in at a disadvantage because uh, usually the vast majority of, of watchers or listeners are going to be Trinitarians and they're going to be sympathetic to that viewpoint. So when we were coming into the debate, um, you know, one of the things that I felt was important is that I feel like we win, Dustin and I win the debate, I'm putting that, you know, air quotes, win the debate, if people, Trinitarians, leave that debate thinking, well, you know, that's actually something worth looking into or thinking about more. You know, I don't feel like we had to destroy them or any any of those things. You know, I feel like the the point was, let's put out a view that's coherent, cohesive, biblical, logical, and is, is worthy of being looked at further. And I think I think we were able to to accomplish that. Dustin, I don't I don't know if you want to add to that. You know, uh, this is the third debate I think that I've done uh, representing the biblical Unitarian perspective. Uh, one of them was live, and uh, prior to this debate, another debate was also online. Actually, I think now this is four. They all kind of blur it together. So I'm kind of new into the debating realm uh, just because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work if you want to do it right, if you want to study your opponent, if you want to prepare, because, I mean, how do you adequately prepare to answer every possible thing someone could be, that they could raise on this particular topic? So, uh, but I was happy that uh, our goal going into the debate, which was to have it respectful and cordial. I'm glad that that was received as it was intended. And I hope that this debate will uh, get some continued mileage out of it and it'll have a longer shelf life as compared to all the other debates uh, that are out there that have been out there for years. Yeah. That's another interesting thing about online debates is, you know, they get most of their views probably and listens in the first day or two after their broadcast. But on a perennial topic like this, as opposed to like a political debate or some other very timely topic debate, um, people will probably find this for years to come. And it's hard to know what effect that will have on people. There are some famous, maybe famous isn't the right word, you know, Unitarian, Trinitarian debates that I'm sure many of us have seen. I I have sort of, you know, my own thoughts. Like I've generally avoided online debates I've been in kind of one pseudo debate of somewhere between a debate and a conversation with Chris Date. Um, I do, for one reason is I find debates just stressful. Like in the, the time leading up to a debate, it's like that feeling of getting ready for finals or something like that, <laughs> that I have, you know, I, I need to just have all of this information stored and easily accessible and very organized in my head. And it just like consumes my attention and I probably become a less pleasant person in the couple of days beforehand because I just want to make sure my, you know, my headspace is totally prepared. And so that I just find that part a little bit unpleasant. And I think that I don't know that I think different people find different approaches and formats persuasive. And I, I've sort of come around on this a little bit. Part of me was like, 
add debates. Those never change anyone's mind. It's time to do conversations and stuff like that. But I think there's different strokes for different folks. I think some people really do like the debate format. And, so, and there is a lot of merit to it and it being really focused and substantive. And sometimes conversations, I, you know, conversations appeal to a different sort of personality and debates appeal to a different personality. And I think we can be all things to all people and, and walk and, and chew gum. And who knows, maybe I'll host debates in the future. Maybe I'll be in debates in the future. I'm not precluding that. But I've sort of, I think maybe a couple of years ago, I, I had a more anti-debate stance than I, I do now. And I think that, that you guys had a really good one. Um, so I guess now I'll, I'll play a, a clip from the debate that I thought was interesting because I should also say there have been a couple reaction videos, I think, already to the debate. Dustin, on your own podcast, you've sort of played some clips from the debate and also given a little bit of your commentary or reactions on that. Um, I think Sean from Restitudio has talked to Brandon Duke a little bit, maybe on his channel about that. Um, but so I, I didn't want to cover completely just recover some ground that's already been covered. But I thought one thing that was interesting, and this is from their opening statement, they being the, the pro uh, Jesus is Yahweh side. Uh, so I'll play a little bit of this clip now. Sure. Our question is, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Now, this is not a philosophical question, nor is this a question about historical interpretation. It is a question about the Bible. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Our goal, then, is to show that at least one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh. Because if one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh, then the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. We will make two contentions from the Bible. First, we contend that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. Second, we contend that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. As to our first contention that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh, we would point to three passages where people accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Sorry, I was on mute. Um, I, I'm going to cut that off there. Uh, sorry, I was taking a sip of my water. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting from that clip is that he, he said, this is not a question of philosophy or historical interpretation. And I get that the topic of the debate was, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? And I appreciate you know the desire to focus mostly on biblical um, evidence uh, as, the as the main topic of the debate. But I felt like philosophy and history were sort of lurking in the background too, and that they couldn't be divorced from this topic. And so I thought that that was sort of an, an interesting move to make off the bat. I'm wondering what both of your reactions was to kind of that, that move that they made in their opening statement. Yeah, it became pretty apparent that on one hand they would say, well, we're not going to talk about philosophy or historical interpretation. Uh, but as the debate kind of continued, it became quite clear that uh, they were importing philosophical notions of the being of God, of Anousia, um, and uh, reading in certainly some, some post-biblical terms and theological concepts back into the Bible. Um, and, and, and we called them on that. We pointed that out, and we said this is anachronistic. In fact, we anticipated they were going to make that argument, and so we 
uh, strategically put that into our opening statement to try to block that off right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, we weren't going to tolerate uh, the anachronistic reading of 4th and 5th century uh, AD uh, theological concepts back into the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament because uh, we knew they were going to do that. But it was just kind of interesting that they said at the beginning, oh, we're not going to do this or that's not what this is about. But actually, that's what they did anyway. So, right. And then they would explain like the communitatio idiomatum or something like that, which is a Latin phrase from like the Middle Ages. Um, and so I, I thought that, that this is another thing that I find interesting. And there's another clip that might even be more relevant to this is, uh, is that interaction between um, the, the framework at which they're approaching it and that you're trying to, because their framework is larger than the question, Jesus is Yahweh, because they, they don't just mean Jesus is Yahweh. They mean this is one of the three persons in an eternally triune Yahweh and that Jesus has uh, a hypostatic union of a human and divine nature. That's like the full thing of what they mean when they say Jesus is Yahweh, which I feel like makes it hard to actually kind of focus on the specific question. So I, I don't know if you guys felt like that made it a little bit difficult. Well, I think just briefly, one of the things that really struck me as I was listening to their opening statement, and you could tell me if you agree with this, is that they never actually defined their own terms. They never actually said, this is the definition of Yahweh and the Bible. And this is the definition of Jesus, and now we're going to identify. And this the is the definition of is. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't do that. And but in our opening statement, the first thing that we did was that we defined Yahweh, and the second thing we did was that we defined Jesus. Because if you're going to have a debate on whether Jesus is Yahweh, both of those terms have to be defined, and they never did that. Now, prior to the debate, we had asked them, "Hey, can you define what you think about Yahweh?" And it became quite clear in the debate as it went on that uh, they just equivocated on this particular definition all over the place. It just, it was Yahweh could be the triune God or Yahweh could be a way of referring to the Father. It could be a way of referring to the Son. It could be a way of referring to the Holy Spirit. And so you never knew if Yahweh was one person or three persons or a different person. It just, it was kind of whatever they wanted God to be. So, you know, that was a little bit difficult, but I want to see what Will has to say on it. Yeah, I think there's a larger question here, like a, about debate strategy. We, Dustin and I, when we were first talking to Samuel and Marlon before the debate even, before we even had a topic, we really wanted to limit the topic to like two natures or limit a Trinity topic to like the Gospel of John or like we really wanted to get in deep and have a more in-depth conversation. And they, they said, well, we want to talk about whether you know, Jesus is God or not. And then we want to do it across the whole Bible. And the reason why I believe they did that is because to make the Trinitarian argument work, you can't just camp out in one book. You have to have the whole Bible and do this thing where you like read this little passage in Isaiah and then you cross-reference a title later and oh, you know, somehow magically these two are one-to-one -one correspondence. And so, you know, Dustin and I knew going into the debate, that's the kind of strategy that they were gonna have to use to to uh, to overcome this large burden because Yahweh is just a a, a Hebrew, you know, title for God. And it just doesn't exist in the New Testament for obvious reasons, uh, being a, a Greek text. Uh, so anyway, the, the whole point I'm trying to make here is, is that their strategy hinges upon having all the, you know, the whole Bible at their disposal and then just like switching back and forth between contexts and essentially hoping that people think that the context here and the context here line up exactly and that they can just 
relate those two things. And so you have the equivocation on Yahweh or the equivocation on the title of God um, and this, this larger Trinitarian superstructure that gets built. But the reason why they say things like um, all we need is one verse that teaches that Jesus is Yahweh is because that's how weak their case is. They have to be able to, you know, they can't look at 20,000 singular references because they don't, you know, they don't have plural references like that. They have like a couple and don't do what they want them to do. And so they have to, to overcome that kind of a burden of proof. They, what they have to do is they have to, you know, do a little bit here and then do a little bit there and they have to equivocate. That's literally the only way they can do business with, with the, with the Bible. Yeah. They need a little bit of Philippians two uh, sprinkled together with a, a variant manuscript of Daniel seven and all those sorts of things to try and, you know, Correct. squeeze together yeah. an argument. So one thing that I particularly wanted to ask Dustin about is um, their opening statement relied upon um, the gospel of John a little bit, specifically chapters eight and 10, where um, Jesus is accused of either making himself equal to God or perhaps invoking the divine name or not in, in John eight. And then they they relied upon the Jewish reaction to what Jesus said as evidence that that Jesus is Yahweh. Uh, I wanted to uh, I felt you kind of addressed this, Dustin, but I felt like um, I, I wanted to give you a little bit more time to respond in specific uh, to that argument and how that relates to the theme of misunderstanding in the Gospel of John. Yeah, the difficulty that we had with this particular structure is that uh, both sides had 15-minute opening statements, but only 10 minutes for responses. Now, how do you adequately respond to 15 minutes in only 10 minutes? Uh, I, it's very difficult to do, and I, I think I did an okay job at it. You know, from hindsight, you can always go back and probably do things a little bit better because uh, you're basically summarizing concepts, but... Um, you know, I, I was really surprised that they kind of led their argument with with this sort of suggestion. First of all, the topic of the debate is whether Jesus is Yahweh, but Jesus is not a, accused of claiming to be Yahweh in the Gospel of John. The accusation is that Jesus is making himself equal with God or making himself God or claiming that he was before Abraham as the Messiah. Um, but none of those actually deal with the premise of the debate. Okay. That's it, it, so it just seemed a little bit strange. Okay. Because we have no problem saying, yeah, that Jesus is called God uh, in a few places in the new Testament. That's fine. That's not the same thing as, as saying that Jesus is Yahweh. Moses is called God. Doesn't mean that Moses is Yahweh. It means that Moses is a qualified agent and representative through whom uh, Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel works and functions in his world. So uh, the theme of misunderstanding, again, this is something that as I've just continued to read through uh, the critical commentaries and uh, the monographs of the Gospel of John, this is just widely known and accepted. It's not a controversial issue. Just even basic introductions to the Gospel of John will talk about the theme of misunderstanding or the motif of misunderstanding, and it's something that you just you read it in all of these major works, okay? It's not something that's hidden in the footnotes. It's something that is well understood by specialists on the fourth gospel. And it's something that shows up in the gospel, John, somewhere between like 16 to 20 times. It depends on how you, you define it. And it's pretty equally divided to where the dialogue partner with Jesus is the disciples or it's his, uh, the Jewish uh, crowds 
or his his dialogue partners. And and the way that it works is that uh, Jesus will say something provocative, okay? And the dialogue partner, whoever that may be, whether it's the crowds or the Jews or the Pharisees or maybe it's some of the disciples, uh, they misunderstand Jesus and they typically misunderstand him either by interpreting Jesus way too literally or by asking an inappropriate question. Sometimes it's both of those things. Sometimes it's uh, they misunderstand him by asking an inappropriate question. And then uh, sometimes there will be an answer that clarifies the meaning, whether it's Jesus giving the clarification or whether it's the narrator giving the impression. But sometimes the misunderstanding is so blatant and so obvious to the reader that the narrator doesn't have to explain it for you. It's just so obvious there. Now, one of the things in the Gospel, John, like particularly in chapter 8, as you kind of read through it, that's the biggest hub. When you actually take all of the occurrences of the theme of misunderstanding of the Gospel, John, um, the chapter in which they are the highest frequency is actually John chapter 8. And as you kind of read through John chapter 8, you can see that not only do the misunderstandings continue to pile up, but they get more egregious and more ridiculous as, as they go on. It's it, by the end of John chapter eight, Jesus is saying things and it's not just they're misunderstanding him. They're not even hearing him. They're just they're just not even really paying attention to what he's saying. And, you know, they just they assume that Jesus making these messianic claims. And that's really what Jesus is doing in the gospel of John. He's claiming to be the Messiah that God has authorized, that God has empowered. And the Jews don't think that they think that Jesus is just some sort of ordinary guy that's making these radical messianic claims uh, that, that don't really belong to him. They think that he's a false messiah. But at the end of chapter 8, they're like, you know, you're, you're demon-possessed or, or you're a Samaritan. Uh, or or you're both. Both, you're, yeah, Oh, yeah, you're both. You're crazy, <laughs> you know, all, all sorts of those things. Um, but, you know, you, when, when we understand the theme of misunderstanding, where Jesus makes that provocative statement and to where the dialogue partners misunderstand him, to assume that the dialogue partners are correct in their assessment of what Jesus is doing is to completely misunderstand not only a theme of misunderstanding, but it's also to stop reading right there and to not read as the passage goes on to where the narrator or Jesus himself will actually clarify what is actually meant. And so I was really kind of surprised that there was just kind of a, uh, an ignorance on that topic, which seems to be very widely known in the Gospel of John literature. And uh, and also the fact that they were using arguments where there were claims of, of, of blasphemy um, to where, I mean, let's be honest, like, did Jesus actually blaspheme? That would make Jesus a sinner. OK, is that, is that really a Christian claim that we're, that we're going to accept that Jesus actually sinned and committed blasphemy? Uh, I don't think that's something that if we push them, that's that, that would fit really well with their atonement theory. Um, so. Uh, again, I just there's a lot more that we could say on that, but I thought that since they led with that, um, it, it needed a response, and I was only able to give a short response in sure. light of their 15 minute opening statement. So how how would you like? I feel like most people when they're using an argument that like that they're like saying, look, we need to understand the Gospels, the Gospel of John in their original context. Uh, we need to take on the perspective of a first century Jew to really uh, fully get what's going on. Look, here are the first century Jews in the Gospel of John. So like in some sense, their perspective is correct. And that if we are, uh, you know, 
basically that they have something like an authorized perspective because they're the original audience. And so therefore we need to take what they're saying as true or as representative of how a Jewish person would properly understand what Jesus is saying. How would you react to that sort of argument? Yeah, well, well, Second Temple Judaism was not monolithic. There are a variety of sects. You know, we had uh, prior to the birth of Jesus, we have uh, Pharisees. You know, that are uh, people that are deeply interested in ritual purity. Uh, we have the Sadducees uh, who have uh, interest um, in in power that's localized there in Jerusalem with the Jerusalem Temple, and uh, you have uh, the uh, Jews off out in Qumran, likely to be the Essenes that completely disagree with uh, the the Sadducees and their perspective on the temple. Uh, we have uh, these kind of violent uh, zealots uh, that think that the way to uh, bring about the kingdom of God and to ensure God's holiness is through uh, violent warfare and through uh, assassinations. I think Jesus strongly uh, taught against that sort of mentality. Uh, you could also look at the followers of John the Baptist as, as a different sect. Um, and when we read through the New Testament, it's quite clear that not all of these persons are going to agree with each other. I mean, you could even you could divide that even further. You could The Herodians are kind of their own little uh, subgroups. So uh, it's not true to say that uh, Judaism was monolithic in all of its teaching. There are a variety of different understandings. And when we get to the Gospel of John, one of the things we have to understand is that um, the Gospel of John is written to a community of Christians, likely in Ephesus, towards the end of the first century, uh, many of whom have suffered expulsion from the synagogue, and thereby their opponents are going to be the Jews. But the Jews are the remnants of the Jews after the destruction of the temple. So these are going to be uh, Jews that are Pharisaic Jews because uh, the Essenes were basically destroyed in the year 68 when Rome came out to, um, uh, to beat up on the Jews in Jerusalem. And of course, uh, the Sadducees ceased to be whenever the temple was destroyed. So the only group with any sort of power uh, and influence, that would be the Pharisees. They eventually uh, transitioned into the rabbinical movement. So you have that particular uh, group of Jews um, that are uh, arguing with another group of Jews, which are Jewish followers of Jesus. Okay, uh, Paul himself would see himself as a Jewish follower of Jesus who has transitioned away from being a Pharisee. And even Pharisees, you can even divide into two different groups right there. So there's just a lot of uh, uh, fluidity there, I think, in Jewish thought in the first century. And we have to be honest about that. The Gospel of John is telling the story of Jesus and the unbelieving Jews, but the original readers would have said, oh, this is Jesus representing us, the persecuted Jews at the end of the first century, and the Jews that were opposing Jesus, those are representing the Jews that are uh, kicking us out of the synagogue and uh, disowning us and saying nasty things about us and saying that our claims of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, uh, are wrong or incorrect or blasphemous. So I think those are a lot of uh, uh, details that uh, we have to kind of keep in place if we want to be responsible interpreters of these ancient texts. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that I imagine the theme of misunderstanding is serving in the Gospel of John is sort of like what you mentioned, Dustin, that the, the audience of the Gospel of John is a Christian community in the Greek diaspora somewhere, and who is probably very heavily criticized by the non-Christian Jewish local 
community and is maybe even suffering some amount of persecution or or, or some other mistreatment for their beliefs. And it's sort of like those things that the Jews say about you now, well, don't be surprised. They misunderstood and criticized Jesus for the same things. And Jesus addressed those questions and they still didn't get it. And that there's some sort of kind of like a, an inside joke almost, not quite a joke, but like a, an insider thing where like, look, we understand what Jesus is saying, but uh, in the same way that the Jews now misunderstand us when we explain these things, don't be surprised at that they, they misunderstood Jesus on the same topics. And so when, when your debate opponents are taking the side of the Jewish opponents of Jesus to make their argument, they are in, they, I feel like it's, once you understand this misunderstanding motif, you can see they're taking the opposite of what the Gospel of John is trying to teach. And that they're sort of almost divinizing or giving scriptural authority to Jesus's opponents, which is the exact opposite of the point that the Gospel of John is trying to make with that misunderstanding motif. Yeah, and I think it also kind of uh, uh, goes along with uh, the type of literature that the Gospels are. And I think really... Uh, even casual pew sitting uh, readers of the Bible uh, should spend some time looking into this, into what is it actually that we're reading with these gospels. And there's a lot of work that's done on these ancient Greco-Roman biographies, which are very different from modern biographies. But, you know, we have uh, a lot of examples in the first century of other uh, similar uh, Greco-Roman biographies. And I think we have like 40 something examples of them. So we have a lot of things to compare them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the things that we learn when we do those comparative studies and we try to understand what is this type of literature that we're reading is that often they were written to highlight a particular hero and to use that as a teaching model, but also it, they were meant to kind of contrast uh, or polemize uh, those that disagreed with them. So you could see this uh, very clearly in Gospels like Matthew and John, to where in Matthew it's quite clearly uh, the the Pharisees, to where in the Gospel of John it's quote unquote the the Jews, which um, are not actually different groups. It's, it's very interesting because both of those are written from the perspective of after the destruction of the temple and you know this emerging. Uh, perspective of Judaism after the destruction of the temple uh, against the perspective of these uh, followers of Jesus. So um, if anyone is interested in, in literature on that, they can just email me or DM me and I can point them in the right direction of things to read. Uh, or you that, could so. listen to Dustin's excellent podcast series on the theme of misunderstanding the gospel yeah. of John, which is, I, I still think my favorite series that you've ever done are the one that I got the most out of. So uh, I'll link to that, Dustin. I thought that was really good. So one of their other um, arguments from their opening statement, and this topic came up again in their cross-examination, was sort of the argument from worship, is why I would call it, that Old Testament says only God could be worshipped. New Testament says that Jesus should be worshipped. Um, these things are in agreement with each other. Therefore, Jesus is that God that's supposed to be worshipped as an argument for making um, Jesus uh, Yahweh. So uh, as you both know, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because that was uh, sort of the, the topic of my recent UCA presentation. So um, how did you guys uh, think about that topic or uh, that argument? And maybe I'll pass it to Will because you haven't got a chance to speak very much yet. 
Yeah, we were um, one of one of my responsibilities uh, leading up to the debate was to do a lot of the um, prep on what Samuel believed about the Trinity and how he presented his case against Carlos. And uh, so I told Dustin that they were very likely to make this argument from worship. Um, and so we, I think we were pretty well prepared. I, I do think the Daniel 7 Pollock uh, sort of weird reference was a little bit of a curveball. Do you want um, to explain what that was? Yeah, so there's there's a Aramaic word, Pollock, that gets used in Daniel 7 in reference to the Son of Man. And um, in the Septuagint translation of it, it uh, uh, uses Latruo, which is a word that's in the New Testament only reserved for the Father. Um, in the New Testament, as we pointed out, proskuneo gets used of Jesus, and there's like five or six other words for worship, and none of those other words get applied to Jesus. Um, so the idea that Pollock is Latruo and that Latruo gets applied to the son of man and the son of man is Jesus, you know, like it takes like three or four steps to get you there, but uh, they did try to try to do that. Um, I think, you know, that's one of the things that after the debate, you just wish you, you knew it was going to come up because I think there, there is a couple, there are a couple easy answers to that. One of them is uh, there's been some work done by other biblical Unitarians that have shown that, Plock is used in the the targums to uh, not just be a proscan. It, it can be like proscaneo, not just latruo. In other words, it so it can be think, a bowing or a right a recognition a lesser, of authority as opposed to full blown right. sacrificial ritual worship or something. Well, Correct. we see in the we see outside of the Aramaic portions of the Hebrew Bible that Pollock is used with human beings as the object. So the contention they were making is that, look, it's, it's used, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, under a dozen times uh, in the Hebrew Bible toward the object uh, when it's used in a proving way is only used of, of the true God, but now it's also used of the son of man. And so they just kind of connected uh, those, those two things. So, so it, it sounds like, to me, that your part of your response was making something of a worship distinction in because some people like Dale Tuggy will often, when presented with the argument of worship, just be like, um, Jesus or, or the Son of Man or the Messiah just gets exalted to a place where he can be worshiped. And so, therefore, that argument doesn't hold. But it seems like you guys were taking the tact of there's a difference in the worship to God and the worship to Jesus or or a proskuneo latreo distinction or a worship veneration distinction or something like that. Was there of you guys correctly in your approach to that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's at least how I approach it. And, um, you know, Dustin, I don't know if you, I, I mean, I think a lot of what we talked about was, you know, here are the 20 times that a human being gets worshiped in the old Testament. And that was just like the real quick 30 second response that Dustin gave in his rebuttal, which I thought was incredibly rhetorically powerful. Um, and that comes to pass because we, we essentially knew that that argument was coming. Um, but I also think Bill Schlegel made a good point in his, I think he had a couple comments on the, either the original debate thread or in a couple of the uh, threads on Facebook that I've seen in the wake of it. And that is that the worship argument also interestingly can fail if you submit it to the communicatio idiom, idiomatum, which is if we can say that Jesus is worshiped, then and you can say that whatever is said of the divine nature and the human nature, it all can be said of Jesus. Then you could easily make the argument the opposite way. You could say, 
um, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus is a human. Uh, and then you, you get into a hard part when you say, well, only gods can be worshipped because of Jesus as a human. So yeah. it, it, implicitly there, you're denying the human nature of, of Jesus by saying he can't be worshipped. Um, so I think we could or have actually only one of his way. natures is worshipped or or but something. They, and then, but then the, Samuel yeah, the doesn't like that. Samuel, yeah. I, I pushed him in cross sex on something else. And he said, you cannot separate them. And I said, OK, that's fine. I'm trying to understand this whole thing, you know. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the worship the worship problem has the same problem that the death problem has. It has the same problem that all these other things has. If you have two natures and one nature can accept it, but the other nature can't, what do you do? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's another issue too because they, um, and and I push I definitely push back on this, and it was actually raised again in cross examination regarding how Daniel seven functions and the identity of the Son of Man in Daniel seven, and of course this comes down to the original meaning of Daniel 7 in its original context and how uh, prophetic and apocalyptic uh, visions work. And one of the things that I showed is that um, you have two distinct figures in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. You have uh, the Ancient of Days, which in Aramaic is the Ancient One of Days. Uh, we, I think we all agree that's the Father. And then you have the Son of Man, and the Son of Man, it is given to him. You know, To him was given dominion, glory, and kingship that all the peoples and nations of every um, you know, every nation uh, should serve him, okay? And so uh, it's this worship that is now given to the Son of Man. The Son of Man is authorized with God's dominion, God's glory, and God's kingship so that the Son of Man can actually uh, receive this worship. And it is a highly exalted worship. There's no doubt about that. But as the passage goes on and it unpacks what the these beasts are and the son of man is we learn that the beasts aren't actually ferocious animals out there in the world. The beasts are actually nations. And we learn the son of man is not a single figure. It is actually a reference to the saints of the most high. In fact, they are the persecuted saints of the most high. And so we, we actually learn that it's a reference to the, the suffering, uh, faithful, um, children of Israel. Okay. So, as the passage goes on, it's quite clear that whatever you want to say about Palak, it is um, unquestionably used of human beings in a way that's authorized. Okay, But we're not going to sit there and say that the suffering nation of Israel is collectively Yahweh. You know, it's just, again, that's just, it's just a really strange argument that they brought that I didn't think was very powerful. In fact, what it did is it actually further enhanced our point, which is that Jesus— is the one who is the highly empowered and highly authorized agent of God, that God has bestowed God's privileges and God's prerogatives, one of which, of course, um, is, is the ability to, uh, to do things that God does or even to receive worship. Um, but they aren't identified. They're clearly distinguished. And um, the, the authority that Jesus has, I think, is probably best described as borrowed. It's borrowed from the Ancient of Days. Mm -hmm. It's borrowed from Yahweh. But he's not Yahweh himself. Yeah, I, I have a follow-up question. I don't actually know the answer to this. Um, there are, I assume there are multiple Greek translations of Daniel. Yes. And that there isn't like a the Septuagint of Daniel, because the Septuagint was the Pentateuch, really. And then there were multiple Greek translations of various other parts of the Old Testament. Are all Greek translations of Daniel 7.14, do they all use Latreo of what happens to the Son of Man? 
or is there variety in that? Because I feel like they were out on a limb of saying, hey, Latruo means worship that you can only give to God. And that is what the Septuagint translation of, da of the Aramaic in Daniel uses. So that's already stretching it a little bit. And I was wondering in my head, I'm like, I bet that there's probably some translational variety even on that word, which would even further weaken the case that's already a stretch on a stretch. Yeah, so so we have uh, this, if, if I go too far off on a rabbit trail on this, just kind of pull me back in. Um, I'm trying not to like talk so much to where Will doesn't get to uh, contribute because I, I, want, I want to hear more from Will's perspective on this. Uh, so the Septuagint originally was the Pentateuch, which is a Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Eventually, uh, they continued to translate the rest of the Hebrew Bible, and it was all completed by the end of the second century B.C., uh, as the last books of the Hebrew Bible uh, were actually finalized. Uh, so, uh, but that is, that was the, we'll call that the, the earliest Greek translation. Um, in the book of Daniel, there was another Greek translation uh, by a guy named Theodotion. And so they call it the Theodotion translation. And uh, typically when you have uh, Bible programs uh, and you put the interlinear there, uh, they'll give you uh, the, the Septuagint and they'll also give you the Theodotion. Theodotion did not translate it. Um, with uh, Latrebo. He did it uh, with the verb uh, to serve. Um, I think uh, Zuloo um, from, um, from the noun uh, Zulos. Okay. Um, Which is uh, like slave. Like, yeah, yeah, to yeah, do, so, yeah, yeah, to that's, do that's, servant work. Yeah. 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 Um, but the, the reality is that, again, just a very simple reading and exegesis of the original passage indicates that this this son of man figure is a representative for other um suffering saints of the most high god okay uh plural persons um and then it gets it's kind of condensed at the end of daniel 7 27 uh to where um then all the authority and the kingship under the whole heavens are given to the people of the saints of the most high uh and then it's actually um uh, describing them going from that plural reference back to a singular, uh, his dominion will be an everlasting dominion. I think perhaps pointing us back to that uh, representative function that the Son of Man has earlier back in verse 14. So again, it's, just, it's, it's one of those passages to where our argument is, hey, don't just sit there and read these couple of verses and make a conclusion there. You have to read the rest of it. And by refusing to read the rest of it or take what the rest of it says, especially in apocalyptic sections to where you actually have someone explaining the vision. That's the purpose of it is, is the, the revealing and the unveiling of these visionary uh, dreams and symbols. Uh, we have to take that seriously if we want to be uh, responsible interpreters of these ancient texts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a very good point. Um, so question for Will, how do you, how did you shape your opening statement? As a debate craftsman, how do you think about that, and how did you approach that? Yeah, <clears throat> so early on, Dustin and I talked about sort of what we wanted to say and how we wanted to construct things, and you know, we worked through the seven points together in terms of uh, part of it was offensive, you know, points that we felt like if they didn't address them, that they would win, essentially win the debate, or at least get people's attention that hey, this is something worth considering. Um, and so in, in our mind, you know, point three was particularly important. Um, and I think there point five was another one that was really important. Then, you know, six and seven were sort of preemptive. Um, but, you know, the whole idea was, you know, we have seven points. We want to get through seven points and we have, you know, 
really any of these is going to get people's attention. Any single one of these should get people's attention. Um, and so we wanted to sort of put ourselves in a position where we didn't need all seven to, again, win the debate. If they had good responses or something, we felt like we needed to shift our focus to another part of the debate that we could do that successfully and still get people's attention uh, to how strong the Unitarian case was. But but essentially, we talked through that together, those seven points, and Dustin outlined a lot of them. And we outlined the, the biblical case that we wanted to make, the specific verses we wanted to read together. We went back and forth. Um, at one point late in the process, Dale Tuggy actually read, he was at my house um, a couple weeks before the debate. I had him read the opening statement. He offered some suggestions and we took like 85% or 90% of his suggestions and incorporated them. And then it was a question of, you know, Dustin, Dustin's strength in this whole debate process versus my strength in this whole debate process. Uh, Dustin's strength, as, as we've seen already just in this conversation and in, and in on the debate night is he is the subject matter expert. You know, he He's read way more about all these things than I have. Uh, he's got a grasp of the languages that's way deeper than, than mine. Um, I have a you know decent level understanding of all the different aspects of the debate. And I've thought about this issue a lot over my you know 37 years on this earth. And, and but I'm I'm a pastor. I'm not I'm not a scholar and I don't have that scholarly level uh, background. And so I really leaned on Dustin on his uh, subject matter expertise, on his linguistic expertise. And my responsibility really was to help strategically in terms of predicting what they were going to say, um, thinking about strong ways of asking questions in cross-sex. And then what I did with the opening statement specifically was I added a lot of rhetoric at various points in the opening statement to help people follow along and understand the points that we were making even more clearly. And so it was really a, a joint process between Dustin and myself, the whole opening statement. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I think every opening statement is different. You know, your topic really dictates what your opening statement is going to look like and, and um, how long you have is going to be another, uh, another limiting factor. With 15 minutes and with my, uh, I used to do cross-sex debate. So that's the debate where people are like, da, 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 you know, speaking really mm -hmm. quickly. So I, you know, I, I picked a speed that I felt like was as fast as was comfortable for a general audience. So I hope if you watched it on YouTube, if you put it on 1.25, I don't know <laughs> how, how hearable it was, but it was pretty quick. Uh, so yeah, that was what we thought about is how much can we put in 15 minutes? It's really going to get people's attention. And, um, and so that's really what we, how we went about it. Sure. Have you ever considered a career as an auctioneer? <laughs> no, those guys are, those guys are fun though. Yeah. All right. I've got another clip that I think was a really interesting part of the debate and one that sort of stuck in my mind and that I want to react a little bit to. So I'll play this clip. It's a Enoch. We are going to stick with scripture. And I love that. Um, I would want to point out a couple of things, though. Uh, you had asked at one point that we set aside our beliefs in order to interpret Scripture. I don't think that that's something that we can or should do. Um, in fact, I would argue that we bring our presuppositions to the text, and what we're looking at is not so much um, how we could set those presuppositions aside, but whether or not our presuppositions and the view of the text that we have is consistent. So there was almost nothing that you said in the opening statement that I couldn't say as a Trinitarian. So for instance, you said um, that we would disagree that Yahweh is a singular noun with a singular referent. 
whenever I refer to God, I refer to him as him. I use singular pronouns, singular verbs, everything else, because I believe that Yahweh is one. Um, I do not believe in tritheism or three gods. I believe in one God who has three upostasis, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so whether or not there are 20,000 references to Yahweh as a single uh, unity, well, we would agree. Yahweh in his being is a single unity. Um, sure, and I'll, I'll stop that there. I thought that this was one of those points in the debate where I was like, huh, I'm not even quite sure how to approach that. And I think that there are two things going on that I'm curious to get some of your guys' thoughts on. There's the sort of presuppositionalism question, right? Of what does it even mean to sort of read scripture at all? Can we really do that without frameworks or presuppositions? And is it really just my presuppositions against your presuppositions and seeing if there's some sort of textual coherence? And then there, the second aspect of this was Kyle basically like saying, you know, I actually agree with all of your main kind of points. It's just that I don't think that they're against my argument or I don't really view them as arguments in your favor. And I, I don't know, I, I'll, let's deal with the presuppositionalism question first and then we'll get back to the, I actually didn't disagree with most of your points. I just don't think that they're points in your in your. Um, uh, debate side, the question, your side of the debate question. So, so what did you make of that move that he made regarding presuppositions and frameworks and stuff like that? I guess I'll go first. I, I'm, I was thankful, honestly, that Kyle was so open and honest about that because uh, I would, in some sense, agree with him that we all bring a filter to the, when we read the Bible. You know, we, we all have our worldview, the way that we approach things. And so, um, you know, the fact that he was willing to, to openly say that. And I think by the end of the debate, he actually, he said a couple of really surprising things, either in our Q&A or, you know, our cross-ex or in Q&A, where he was like, um, he was basically granted that our presuppositions and his presuppositions in his mind were more or less like equally viable. Like he didn't quite put it that way, but he, he basically said, you know, I understand this text as a Trinitarian. And then he said, he sort of trailed off. There's sort of like this ellipsis, but there was this understanding that like, I think you would find it okay with your Unitarian view too. And we were like, yeah, yeah, we totally would agree with you that we can read this and totally be fine. And so I think he, he granted us some credibility on our presuppositions. Um, but I, I do think that if, if, the, if the question of the debate comes down to uh, which, which view is more biblically consistent um, I think we made a strong case that our view is way more biblically and logically consistent and in keeping with the historical framework. Because once you start talking about presuppositions, now you're bringing in philosophy. Now you're bringing in his history. Now you're bringing in all these other things. Because our point was you only have a Trinitarian framework because of some guys in the fourth and fifth century. And that there was a long story that, you know, sort of like a perfect storm that led up to that in the second and third centuries, too. So. Um, anyway, I think I think it was an it was an eye opening part of the debate for for me in terms of his willingness to be open and honest about the fact that they take their presuppositions to the text. I thought that was a huge um, a huge moment in the debate for sure. Yeah, let me follow up on that. One of the things that stood out to me because it was really important that I I wanted to 
capture moments to where they defined Yahweh. And that was a point to where he he defined Yahweh. He said, you know, he, he said, you know, we all agree that Yahweh is is one. Uh, and then he said one in, in three substances. Um, but the premise of the debate is whether Jesus is Yahweh. And so the logical conclusion would be that they think that Jesus is one with three substances. They think Jesus is the Trinity. But again, that's their problem. The problem is that they want to apply Yahweh to Jesus as a single individual. And they also want to apply Yahweh to the triune God. And Yahweh can't refer to a single self-being and a tri-personal being. It just it doesn't mean that. No lexicon says that. No Hebrew lexicon gives that definition whatsoever. It's inconsistent. You can't sit there and, and do that sort of stuff there. So uh, I think it, it demonstrates a, a big uh, problematic hole in their argument. And I hope that people saw that and recognized it on top of the fact that he just openly admitted that it's okay for us to read in these concepts back into the Bible. And I think he responded that way because we had made a point in our opening statement that uh, you can't anachronistically read these things uh, back into the Bible, which I still think is is correct. You can't do that. You can't anachronistically um, read those concepts you, back you into mean the Bible. You, you shouldn't. <laughs> you, uh, you it's can't. possible. <laughs> it, it is possible to anachronistically read the Bible. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 you, yeah, it's, it's against the rules. Okay. We, we, have to, we, we have to be playing by the same set of rules when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And I think as the kind of debate went on, it became very apparent to me that we're not playing the same game. You know, uh, Will and I are, are playing football and, and and they're playing baseball. Okay. Yeah. There's a ball in it. Okay. Yeah. There's players. There's two different teams. Okay. But you know, we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to score touchdowns and they're trying to steal second base. And, you know, and, we think and we're then winning. It brings up the question of how, how do you even judge who's winning? And, and I thought that, that that's one of the, the really kind of uh, interesting aspects, of, I feel like, of that moment is that if it's just sort of different, uh, you know, presuppositional frameworks trying to demonstrate their coherence, it, it's hard to judge what that coherence would mean or, or what, what scale you're, you're using to see who's winning. And I thought that that was one of those sort of like, meta moments or breaking the fourth wall kind of moments to me in this debate where it's like, Ooh, that that's like really hard to deal with because it's almost, it's almost changing the nature of what's going on in general. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, I mean, just take that same analogy. Imagine that the, uh, you know, the Kansas city chiefs, they show up for a home game and they're all wearing, you know, their shoulder pads and their helmets and everything else. And they show up and they line up on the line of scrimmage and the other team comes out in baseball uniforms. Okay. You know, it's not a matter of, well, whose perspective is right. It's like one of them is obviously playing one game that we all agree we should be playing. And the other one is like, they're coming out, they're playing a sports game, but they're playing by a different set of rules. And it's just like, it looks so odd that you don't even need to comment on it at that point. Hmm. Um, you know, but uh, you know, that this is the reality. It's just that they, they are, um, they're very comfortable with reading in their own presuppositions into the text, okay, which is which is called eisegesis, okay. You're not supposed to do that. It's a big no-no, okay. That's not interpretation, which is reading something out of the text. That's that's imposing your own views and your own frameworks uh, into the text, okay. Uh, call it whatever you like, but that's not interpretation. 
So and it sounded like he was saying there's there's only eisegesis and there's only competing forms of eisegesis or something like that was almost the way that I took him. And yeah. I I felt like that's like it's undermining both of you at the same time. And and then I I don't know wh where you go next from there. And yeah. it, it also connected interestingly to his opening statement when he said, This isn't a question of philosophy nor is it a question of historical interpretation, right? And, and Samuel especially is often like, it's what I'm saying is just right there. It's plain on the surface. It's plain <laughs> on the surface. And then Kyle makes this sort of different move of, you know, we all come to it with presuppositions and stuff like that, which I felt like was sort of undermining Samuel's kind of general approach. And then that just brings up the whole philosophical question of, so what exactly is your presuppositions? And then I, if I don't understand, and this kind of leads into the second half of the clip where he's like, you know, I actually agree with most of your points. And it just, it doesn't bother me that there are 20,000 singular references to uh, Yahweh as a singular individual, because I think that too. I just also think he's not a singular individual. Um, and and so it, it, it's, it, that that to me, this is something that I've seen happen over and over and over again in either debates at like, you know, a, you know, semi-professional YouTube level or just individual conversations is that a Trinitarian, when they hear a biblical Unitarian make most of their points, they don't actually disagree with some of the points. It's just that their framework can handle that and it can do other things at the same time. It's almost like biblical Unitarianism is within their framework. And so they can make all the biblical Unitarian moves. It's just that they also want to have this ability to make other moves. And that makes it very difficult as a biblical Unitarian because it's basically like, then the game is like, I can actually do everything that I need to do in the Bible with this smaller set of moves. You have all of my moves and extra moves. And then I have to prove that your extra moves are completely unnecessary for all of the Bible ever. And that actually is a very difficult thing to do. So I don't know if yeah. you guys did. No, I think it's a, I think I'll use another analogy when I, um, when I interact with people who are atheists or in like evolutionists and, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, Sam, but um, you know, it's like, I can do everything that an evolutionist can do and more, you know, I've got this God thing. I can press this miracle button and I can mm -hmm. explain all this other stuff. I have more explanatory power just by virtue of the fact that my worldview includes a God and theirs doesn't. So, you know, they have to explain away all these weird things where I can just be like, yeah, sure, God can in interact. And maybe, you know, other spirit beings can interact with the world, too. And, you know, so I can explain all sorts of stuff. So I think I think you put your finger on something that's really critical and important. But I would say that part of the reason that we put those exact seven uh, things out there, those seven points, was to drive a wedge in what you're exactly what you're describing try we, we were trying to make it as difficult as possible for samuel and kyle to agree with us uh, and i think this came out in cross sex a couple of times when i point out to them in psalm 2 and in deuteronomy 18 and in psalm 110 and all three of those passages you have multiple figures and so you have to say as a trinitarian that the one that's called yahweh we all agree is the father pretty much in every one of those passages so you have the father who's called Yahweh. You have the separate figure who's not Yahweh in all these passages. And so how do you reconcile that? And so I, I basically forced him in cross X to say, oh, th this, these two figures, they're two figures, but they're one being. People paying attention 
to the debate saw that, I think, and saw that that was me trying to drive a wedge in between our two perspectives with those three texts specifically. But it's still weird because they can just say, well, Jesus has another nature, so you can call him not Yahweh. I mean, and then, that's not, and then that's, it's and then it's like, well, how do I even saying though? Yeah, that's yeah, not Samuel would say that though. How do you even interact? Yeah. yeah. Or, well, yeah. anyway, go ahead. Well, and I think too, you know, one of the things that we kind of realize going into a debate is that we are not going to convince our dialogue partners of our position. You know, we're not here to convince them or to or to get them to change their mind. If they do, that's great. But this is for the audience. This is for the live audiences, for the people that are watching it. This is for us to be able to present our case um, logically, uh, clearly, coherently, and respectfully, and for people to judge whether um, our position is more persuasive than their position. That's what it is. So I, I don't get bent out of shape uh, thinking, well, you know, how, how in the world am I going to change their minds? I, I, I don't go in thinking that that's my job or that that's even possible. Um, you know, there's, there's other – like I, I've kind of learned with these topics – especially when you when you work in places uh, that there's there's there are other factors that affect whether you change your mind on on certain topics because it it affects you um, socially and and in a lot of other ways yeah so so that brings up another question that I had for you guys is how familiar do you felt like they were with your arguments and your positions? and your interpretations ahead of time? Well, I, I mean, I can say that in the, we had a meeting with them, a 30 minute meeting with them. What was that Dustin? Two months before the debate. I feel like it was probably two months before the debate. And I think we, you know, I think they, they came into that meeting, not knowing if we were biblical Unitarian or Aryan. So whether we believed in preexistence or not, um, they knew about Dustin's podcast, um, at, by even by that point. And so I thought that was interesting that they knew about Dustin's podcast. Of course, there's hardly anything on the subject that we were debating on that I've put out publicly, although privately I've worked on it quite a bit, uh, but there was nothing out there publicly. So they basically had Dustin, but Dustin, like we said earlier, Dustin's a huge target and there's hours and hours and hours. And what I told Dustin is if, if they were smart, what they would do is they'd look at their opening statement and they'd watch all of Dustin's videos about what they were going to talk about in their opening statement, which would limit them from hundreds of podcasts down to maybe 20 or 30 uh, podcasts and which is a manageable thing to do in two months, I think. Um, and I don't know if they really did any of it. I don't know if they really looked at any of it. Um, they, they did not seem prepared to uh, respond to, they didn't seem to preempt any of our points really, or um, really respond in any great detail to any of Dustin's points, you know, from his podcasts. Dustin, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, I think the other thing, too, is I remember because I'm sitting there in the moment listening to their opening statement and I'm like taking notes as to, you know, how do I want to respond? How can I summarize these points for my my 10 minute rebuttal? And I thought to myself, wow, this sounds vaguely familiar. Wow. This is the same opening statement that he made in his previous debate. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, is that what you just did? Did you really just copy and, and not, you know, because like for us, we wrote our opening statement based not only on the topic that we agreed on, but also on our, you know, on, on Samuel and Kyle and what we thought they would do. We, we formulated and wrote it for them for this particular debate based on our research of them. And, and we, we way over prepared for this. Like I, I look back and I think we way over prepared 
Uh, I spent way too much time doing that kind of stuff there. And, uh, you know, it's a little disappointing that, uh, you know, that, I mean, I mean, they, they did what they thought. Maybe they thought that just by showing up, they would win and hit a home run. I mean, that, that probably is not very fair, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I had, a uh, felt after a while that, um, I don't know that, that, that maybe they could have come in a little bit more prepared with some of the things that I said, like, again, I had put all, you know, four months worth of podcast, you know, 17 episodes, 18 episodes on the theme of misunderstanding. And they open with an issue knowing that I'm going to respond to that uh, again. It's just, it seems like a, a preparation thing. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I can't speak for them, so I probably shouldn't. Yeah. I felt like I could tell in some of their, references to scriptures that they were unfamiliar with how a Unitarian would interpret them. Um, and that showed up a little bit in cross X where they're just like, well, like, like Philippians two was one that struck me that way. Well, like surely you think that this emptying himself is before his incarnation. And it didn't just seem like a rhetorical technique. It seems like a, an unfamiliarity with, you know, how you guys would have interpreted the passage. So I thought that that was interesting that, that this is often the case when there's a majority established position and a minority um, position is that the minority position has both the, the privilege and the disadvantage of being way more familiar with the majority position than vice versa. And I thought that that came through per usual in this debate. Um, so let's see here. I've got another clip that I'm going to show from the debate. So this is from Will's cross-examination. Totally. So I guess, you know, we've been talking about what kind of evidence would we need to be convinced? Um, one of those questions that I would ask in light of that is, could you, can you find a scripture reference anywhere that describes Yahweh as three or as triune? How do you want to respond to that, Samuel? Yeah, I mean, no, I, mean so yeah. I would point I would point to the various passages that we mentioned in our opening statement where we say that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. Um, we could also look at passages that do a similar thing with the Spirit of God. Or we could look at Old Testament passages that appear to us as Trinitarians as a hypostasis of God. Um in an incarnate type form. And so, I mean, I think that for us, it's just look at the scriptures as a whole and you see that God reveals himself in three different hypostases. Yeah, so I thought that that was a, a relatively revealing moment and a one of those things that also pointed to a little bit of lack of preparation on their side. Um, that was a very interesting five or 10 seconds of, of wheel spinning. And that, and I, I like, I had a moment very similar to this in my real life where I was discussing the, the Trinity with a Trinitarian pastor recently. And I was like, so what passage do you point to of, of God being three persons in one and they're, you know, hand waving and then, kind of maybe the settling into, well, there's a bunch of different passages that I have to pull together to, to make the whole kit and caboodle. 
and that there isn't one singular one that I can point to. So I don't know if you guys had any reactions to, to that moment. You know, that this is, I mean, that just, every time I go back and listen to it, that pause, it just sounds like an eternity. It's just, and Will's over there. He's just like points, touchdown, extra point. I just walked into the end zone untouched, unhindered. Um, and I was like, yeah, this, that's, that's good. And, and I, um, and, and people caught that too. Like, like the viewers of the debate, they definitely caught that yeah, sort the, of thing. The, the, the live chat has uh, multiple, not one verse. The answer is no spinning, you know, like there, yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah, the, the yeah. live chat stream also. Knows and the, and this is, moment. you know, and here's the thing. If, if you're watching this, so you're, you're watching this, this, this great podcast, by the way, which uh, you should subscribe to and share with all your friends and, and click the little bell to be notified whenever uh, it it appears. Um, <laughs> I don't get sponsored for that, just like I don't get sponsored by Papa John's. But um, you know, I think to me, like the the numerical strength of the Unitarian position is that uh, God, the, the true God, the Creator God Yahweh, um, is portrayed just in the Old Testament with twenty thousand plus singular references, and that's one of the things we pointed out. Um, the number of times that God in any of his names, uh, which is interesting because Kyle said uh, God reveals himself, singular pronoun, by the way, that you just gave up the Trinity there. Um, but the number of times that God is revealed or equated with the number three, the cardinal number three in Hebrew um, is shalosh. OK, um, it's just none. There aren't there. It's just there, there are no passages to where God is described as three. So zero passages to where God describes himself as three. Over 20,000 where God describes himself as a singular person. And then when you go in the New Testament, if you type in into a word uh, search program, if you type in theos and then the number three, the only verses you're going to get are God raised Jesus on the third day. That's it. There are no mm -hmm. passages where God is described as three. And yet this is the most important doctrine. This is the bedrock of Christianity, supposedly. This is the foundation of our relationship with God. Like God never, ever once described himself as three but thousands and thousands tens of thousands of times he describes himself as one give me a break come on like like i, I just don't know how to i don't know what to do with that evidence if i'm on the other side either i have to like put my you know fingers in my ears and say la 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 or i have to you know just find weird ways to say well god is really one but really he's three also and um, I just, I, I'm just not persuaded by that interpretation. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like go off and preaching or whatever. But, um. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Just, just to add to that, you know, th this highlights to me the importance of some of the strategy that we went into the debate with in terms of being, uh, very kind and considerate of their perspective, because I think even Sean Finnegan said, it seems like Will was trying to lull them to sleep and cross X. And it wasn't, I mean, that was, that was, I think, a side effect of it. But yeah, sure. Were there questions that I wanted to do later in the cross-ex period to have more impact? Yeah, this one was halfway through the period for a reason. Um, but the idea is, is that if you're being kind and considerate to the people that you're dialoguing with, then a moment like this has more power to it. Because like you said, I counted off just now watching it again, I thought five or six seconds of silence followed by a, uh, do you, you want it, you want it, you want it, you want it for a couple more seconds, you know? And I think Samuel eventually gets around to Genesis chapter one, which is just so crazy to me, because if you read Genesis chapter one, you find a unipersonal God whose spirit hovers over the water and who speaks creation into existence. There is no, tri tri you know, triune God there. 
it's just wild to me that that's where he ended up. Yeah. So I guess I, maybe I've been, maybe I could be accused of picking out some of their worst moments. What do you think were some of their, their better moments or some of their strengths in the debate? I think for me, again, I, I can't praise them enough for this is that um, th they were very kind. They were very respectful. And I, and I wanted to make sure on the record that I complimented them for that. Okay. And they, they should be commended for that because, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there uh, that would want to engage in these debates um, that uh, are less than kind and less than respectful. Um, I, I, I was almost at, at times thrown off by how, how nice and how gentle Kyle was. Like he would ask me certain questions about, you know, the size of Montana or whether I actually had any pizza or whatever, um, you know. And like use his it, clock time for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, again, I was just kind of thrown off. It's like, wow. Like he's, um, which is good. Like, and again, I just, that's, I, I think they were um, in their demeanor. Uh, they were examples of, of, of Christian gentlemen. And I, and I, and I, I can't praise them enough uh, for that. And I hope that they, um, that, that they're, they're praised uh, for um, the way that they delivered uh, the particular arguments uh, that they gave. Now we will disagree with their arguments, um, but I'm not going to walk away saying, oh, these guys were rude or they were mean or they were uncharitable. They were very charitable uh, to us. Um, anything you want to add, Will? No, I, mean, I think that's that's really most of it. You know, they they definitely were kind. I think they were. I think I also mentioned earlier that Kyle was particularly open where he disagreed with Samuel, and he did that on a couple of occasions. Um, and you know, that's sort of a debate no no on some level, strategically speaking. But um, I did appreciate the the other thing that I would add to that is is that the the primary difference between Samuel's opening statement with Carlos. And their opening statement with us was the additional stuff that they added about Elohim and how Elohim has a you know wide semantic range. And there was a probably, I don't know, two-minute portion of their opening statement that I was just sit sitting there and like applauding. Like, yes, we agree. We agree that Elohim has a wide semantic range and they can apply to all sorts of different things. And um, so I do think that uh, it was clear to me that Kyle, you know, Samuel's more of an apologist and apologists, especially one who's as gifted as a debater as Samuel is, they want to stand their ground. And you saw, you could see this also in the interaction with William Lane Craig and Dale, uh, you know, a couple months ago, where Dale would push William Lane Craig on a couple things and William Lane Craig would concede, yeah, you know, I think there's something to be said for the point that you're making there, but I disagree with you here or whatever. And I think Kyle, being more of a scholar, was more interested in constructively responding to our points and willing to concede ground when it was appropriate. And so I do uh, really do appreciate that. And um, I tried to do the same thing in cross X, you know, by, by being gentle and saying, look, I think you guys would, would view it this way. This is how we view it. Am I correct in my understanding of how you view things? And that, and that approach just allows you to lay all the elements on the table. And so I was thankful that Kyle really responded that way because I do think we, it was a more productive debate because of it. Mm. Um. One other downside of doing debates is that you spend the next week or two having, oh, I should have said this moments. <laughs> um, do you guys have any Monday morning quarterback regrets that that you feel like you could have or should have said? I, I can go first on that. So Zechariah 2 came up. There was the Yahweh, Yahweh passage. And honestly, like 
I felt like in prepping for this debate that they weren't going to go there. And so it had to happen in audience Q&A. And I was literally, I knew there was a Solomon Solomon verse. So I went like, I was, I don't know if you can go back on the audience Q&A, but I'm like looking over at my second screen, like trying to find it. It's in 1 Kings 8.1. And um, in the wake of the debate, several people posted it. And I was just like, man, because I think, and I, and I do want to add that Dustin got to the right answer on that. You know, there was this long, like one minute pause and then Dustin's reading the passage and he gets to the right answer. But it would have been cool if I could have filled the space while Dustin was looking for the, the full answer for me. But like, look, there's this idiom. It's used of Solomon in 1 Kings 8.1. And I could have read that verse. And then there's no silence while Dustin is looking for, um, you know, the answer in the specific context. So that is my big, probably my biggest groaner. Uh, from the debate i don't dustin i don't know what you think yeah for, for me like i i kind of mentally assume that whenever the closing statements have concluded then the debate is over because when it comes to audience q a you can't prepare for what the audience is going to say because you just don't know that that's just a free-for-all it's just like anything and everything goes and you know that was just something that that the uh that the marlin wanted to have uh, because it's 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 how he makes his money. It's you know it's, it, he makes money by people submitting questions, and he wanted I, to have. I that. also would say I think the audience oftentimes enjoys that portion the most. I often like the cross examination best and the audience Q and A best because yeah. I feel like that is the most stressing time of the debate for people, and that's where you kind of get to see them maybe at their weakest and most revealing moments. Yeah, I would say for me uh, when when I go back, I think that it's just there were difficulties in um, only having 10 minutes to respond to a 15 minute opening statement. When I go back and look at the opening statement, I think, okay, I wish I had more time to respond to these things, but I can only use the 10 minutes in the best way possible. I remember in my closing, um, you know, cause I, I had really, I, I'd kind of filled out a framework of things that I wanted to say. I kind of throughout the debate, I would fill in a couple of notes. And at the end I had, I had a list of, of, big problems that had kind of revealed themselves with their position uh, throughout that. I wanted to read them off and I had like a whole list of them and I'm looking over at my time and I'm like, I've got 15 seconds left on my time. Uh, and I didn't want to go over. Okay. I, I wanted to be respectful. I knew like the thing is I knew I was the last person speaking. I probably could go over and get away with it, but I didn't want to do it. I wanted to have some integrity. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to cut off what I'm going to say here. Cause I had a closing sentence or two sentences that I wanted to say. I had already timed out. So um, there, there were certainly some things that I wanted to do. I was just stressed for time, but I don't think that I was stressed by not really having an answer to some things. There were some things that they raised that I think still warrant the response. And I, I know that in my own personal podcast, I'm going to contribute a lot of the, uh, the next, uh, so many episodes, um, dealing with those so that I can have a, a lengthy time to respond to them. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting that, uh, they kept, emphasizing the fact that we are just looking at the, the clear and simple and straightforward passages, but the number of passages that they raised that are built on shaky textual grounds or having textual variants that the audience might not know if they're not familiar with the textual variants of those passages, you know, it, it shows that they're actually not making an argument based on clear passages. So uh, I, I want to have an, a an opportunity to respond and to point uh, those things out. Uh, to them because i just you know sometimes the audience just just might not be aware of those things so those are kind of like my regrets is uh, mainly that i wish i had more time to respond to them uh not that i didn't have an answer to them i had an answer to them i didn't have time to talk about them so yeah 
All right, last question. Um, regarding the future, do you anticipate doing more debates? Are there any particular individuals you'd like to debate or any particular topics you'd like to debate? I mean, I, I'll, I'll go first. I, I think, you know, uh, two on two debates are, are very interesting because getting two people on the same page is, is not, uh, not always the easiest thing. And again, Samuel and Kyle sort of showed that a little bit, although I think it was helpful for people to see that uh, certainly from the Unitarian perspective, it was helpful to show that like, yes, the thing that we say about no two, two Trinitarians agreeing on things is true. You know, um, as for me personally, you know, I'd be willing to debate again, if I were to debate one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to spend a lot of time preparing because I don't have the same, uh, linguistic ability and scholarship in terms of, uh, what I've read and, and how much I've dedicated myself to this specific question as Dustin has. And so I would have to really prepare answers on everything and have scholarly quotes backing me up and all that stuff. Cause I don't have the, the right degrees and the know-how. So I think it's a longer road and a, a more arduous path for me if I want to debate going forward, unless it's a two-on-two -two with someone like Dustin, uh, who's fantastic to be uh, partnered with. So, oh, you're you're very kind. Um, it's it's like I have I have different feelings about this because going into the debate, I stress myself out about uh, about preparing and preparing well, and, you know, and I'm doing this on top of you know teaching you know my full course load. You know, it's like it, it, this debates at the beginning of, of April and, you know, I'm kind of getting ready to, um, to, to set out finals and stuff like that. So it's like I, I've got lots of other things that are going on uh, in my life. And uh, it was it was difficult to be able to make time to do it well. And that's the thing. It's like if I want to participate in a debate, I want to have the time to prepare well so that I can perform well. Uh, and that takes a lot and because I think I put a high standard on myself and I, I learn things from every debate. Uh, in which I participate and I think, okay, well, yeah, I did better than last time, but of course, you know, I could do a little bit better next time, but it just means more preparation, more time, more investment. Um, now after the bait, I feel like I feel really good. I'm like, look, you know, when is the next one? What are we going to do the next one? Let's find the next person. Let's, let's, let's keep, keep this on a roll. So, um, I'm sure like after that, that euphoria dies down, um, you know, I'll be a little bit more level-headed and, uh, um, I mean, I don't like go and seek them out. Uh, someone approached me with this, with the opportunity, and and it was it was just it it, it was good. It kind of felt uh, fell at a good time for me. So uh, yeah, I'd like to. Um, I don't want to give away exactly the people that I'm interested in debating um, because then that's going to give them too much time to start listening to all my podcasts and stuff like that. Although I'd appreciate the views. That's nice. Um, but. Uh, um, I, I, it's interesting. I, Sam, I think pointed something out to me is the fact that I have 250 plus episodes out there, um, make it difficult to scout me. Okay. So, um, so I, I do have a couple of persons in mind, um, and maybe a year from now, uh, we'll, we'll have those revealed. So, uh, we'll see what happens. So there are two strategies to make it hard to scout you have nothing out you on the internet or have so much that it's overwhelming that you don't know where yeah. to start. Both of those are viable uh, approaches. We check right. both of those checkboxes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Any last words, gentlemen? All right. Well, thank you for coming on uh, transfigure today. I appreciate I appreciate the work that you put into that debate. Like I said, I know it's not easy. 
I know it's stressful. I know it consumes a lot of mental attention leading up to it. And then the the regret phase afterwards also consumes a lot of it, mental attention. So thank you, gentlemen, both for doing that. I think you did a service to the community. And also, I, I think that Samuel and uh, Kyle also deserve commendation for their their good behavior for their work and for um, uh, uh, debating too. So, um, uh, so thank you everybody for listening. Um, thank you very much.